Hi everyone, welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Jitendra. Our today's guest is Randy Shekman. He is an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and a professor of cell and developmental biology in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of California at Berkeley. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2013 for his role in revealing the machinery that regulates the transport and secretion of proteins in our cells. He shares the prize with James Rothman of Yale University and Thomas Shudoff of Stanford University. In this conversation, we talk about his early career, membranes, exosomes, scientific publishing, and eLife. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you for listening. Hi, Randy. Uh, welcome to today's conversation. Pleased to be here, Jatender. Yeah, so uh, today's uh, generation or the generation of 21st century, uh, once they will grow up, of course, they'll be interested in learning why their lives first stopped in, in 2020 uh, because of pandemic. Um, but you were also interested uh, as, a, as a child in, in, in uh, microbes. So how, how did it start? Well, I don't really know how it started. I, I, um, I grew up in Minnesota, but we moved to Southern California just around the time I was 10, 10 or 11, just before that. And um, within an, a year we moved, um, the family moved to our family home in Orange County, which at the time, early 1960s was still uh, almost rural, suburban, somewhat rural. <clears throat> and near my home, there was a dry riverbed with some uh, sort of a, a, a sitting pond. And I remember one day collecting a jar of, of uh, dirty pond scum from this uh, river. And I had from my birthday, I guess, a, a toy microscope. And um, uh, I, I remember the fascination I had looking at this micro at these microorganisms that were swimming and crawling around on the in a, in a drop of this pond scum, you know, things that you couldn't see with your naked eye. I, I just couldn't believe that the that there was another world of equivalent complexity uh, at this level. And uh, somehow it captivated me, and I just continued to be fascinated by microorganisms really throughout my career. And um, that led to um, an interest in university. Uh, initially, I was planning to go to medical school uh, because I, I didn't know any better. But, but once I got to, to UCLA, uh, I was able to work in a research laboratory in my first year. And uh, that, was, that, was, uh, that changed my life. Um, the professor, the young professor with whom I was working said, uh, gave me a book that he said I really needed to read. It was called Molecular Biology of the Gene. It was the first book on the subject from James Watson, the very famous scientist, co-discoverer of the structure of DNA. And it was written in a style that was captivating. And uh, I realized at that point that my, my life was gonna be in, in basic science of cellular processes and, and not in medicine. And so uh, for the rest of my time at UCLA, I worked in, in the lab and uh, got deeply into studies on the mechanism of chromosome replication. And um, I was then fortunate to be able to study for my PhD with really the, the world leader in that subject, Arthur Kornberg, 
who won a Nobel Prize in 1959 for his discovery of an enzyme that make the copies DNA. And he was um, very instrumental in establishing my attitudes about how to approach a complicated problem using biochemistry. Um, but I didn't like the competition in that field. So I chose an area that I felt would, would allow me to grow along with it. And that was bi biological membranes and how they get put together. And so I, for a postdoctoral period of time, I, I studied biological membranes. And then when I got to my current position at U University of California, Berkeley, I started um, to explore the process of protein traffic and secretion membrane assembly in baker's yeast, um, which was not really used as an organism to study secretion very much, but it turned out to be a good choice because yeast is uh, an easy experimental organism given the, the application of classical genetics and biochemistry. And I was able to use both over the course of many years to uncover the, the mechanism of several steps in the process of protein secretion. So that's uh, a thumbnail sketch of my career. Yeah, it's impressive. Of course, we'll talk more about it in, in detail. Um, I have a comment from the uh, from your early years when you started working on yeast. Um, yeast have, yeasts have feelings too. <laughs> so <laughs> That was a joke, that was a joke. Uh, Berkeley is a very liberal, po politically liberal place. And I had a colleague some years ago who, who became an animal rights activist. And he invited these activists onto campus and they caused big disruption. So I, uh, as a joke for one of my seminars, I, I took one of, the one of the pictures from the protest where, where it says animals have feelings too. And I changed the word from animal to yeast, yeast have feelings too. <clears throat> but th that was just a joke. But I showed that slide actually during my, my Nobel lecture and some people thought it was a real, a real picture. <laughs> it, it wasn't. Yeah, but that was, that was funny, yeah. Um, but, but so once you started working on vesicular trafficking, what was already known in the field? Well, the field had been uh, formed through the pioneering work of uh, early cell biologists, uh, principally George Pilate, Keith Porter um, and others who developed techniques of microscopy to visualize organelles inside of eukaryotic cells, principally tissues in, in mammals, for instance, in the pancreas. And Pilate was really the pioneer and he was able to show that there's a pathway of stations where proteins become transported across a membrane and then are encapsulated into a membrane vesicle and conveyed from point to point within the cell, eventually merging at the plasma membrane by fusion to secrete proteins to the cell exterior, proteins like insulin. And uh, I, I got to know um, Dr. Pilate. Later, I, was, I never studied with him, but I grew very fond of him. He was a wonderful scholar, and deeply thoughtful person. Um, and I remember hearing him give a lecture that was basically a reprise of his Nobel Prize lecture just after he won the prize in 1974. Uh, and I was just a beginning postdoc learning about membranes. And uh, although the work that he did was pioneering, I was struck by the lack of any molecular understanding of this process. And so uh, at that point, I resolved to study this, 
mechanistically using yeast uh, to isolate mutants and then to study the genes uh, and what they encode and how that informs the process of secretion. So he, he was uh, absolutely instrumental in the field and, and in my career. Yeah, um, and it, his work is so impressive. Uh, when, once I looked at those images where you know those vesicles are budding and he could show uh, yeah, he, he, uh, his images are still among the best that have ever been published. He was a, he was a master craftsman uh, of the electron microscope. Yeah. So in general, in science, we work with a lot of metaphors. So how do you envision a cell when you are working with a cell? Well, one, one metaphor that I've used is of an assembly line, like in, a, like in an automobile assembly plant, where pieces are stamped out and things are added and moved along a conveyor belt uh, eventually to the finished product. Uh, it's, a, it's a very loose metaphor for secretion, uh, but it's similar. Proteins that are to be secreted are put onto the assembly line by being inserted into or through a membrane. This membrane is called the endoplasmic reticulum. And then this, these proteins become covalently modified. They become packaged into a vesicle and this vesicle moves to another station where the contents are further modified and other vesicles are made. And so um, it's, it's, it's kind of like an assembly line process with certain rigid steps that can occur very reproducibly. I mean, the, I think to understand the importance of this process, we can also zoom out a bit. Um, so recently, Paul Nurse, another um, cell biologist, he, he published a book, What is Life? Mm -hmm. So in his book, he mentions uh, one of the important properties of life as an information, where DNA uh, serves as an information. And um, this information is uh, translated into uh, you know, RNA or protein molecules. Mm -hmm. And um, so here, so if, if we look at in this picture, uh, what do you think, where does your work uh, fit? Uh, well, uh, certainly the work that we did relied on, on, on genes in the chromosomes that uh, encode the building blocks and machinery that orchestrate the secretory pathway. But it's not all just in the genes. I have to say that um, I don't, I certainly agree with Paul, but uh, the cell, cannot form de novo, even if you had, uh, you know, if you were able to, if you, if you could read the entire sequence of a genome in any organism, it wouldn't tell you how that organizes the cell. The cell had, had to evolve from some primitive life form and then slowly build an apparatus uh, that can be replicated but which um, doesn't, doesn't occur de novo at each generation. So uh, the, the endo, and this was something that Pilati recognized that the endoplasmic reticulum um, is, is a template that is uh, self-perpetuating. It does not form de novo. In fact, very few membranes form de novo. They have to form from some pre-existing organelle. And that is obviously, it is the product of the genome but uh, it isn't reproduced by the genome every time a cell divides. Exactly. So there, is a, there is a inherent 
structure to a cell uh, that can actually continue to operate even after you remove the nucleus. Uh, there are experiments where you can take a cell and uh, dissect out the nucleus and the cell will continue to move uh, and it uh, can for a while continue to uh, manufacture new proteins and secrete proteins. It can continue, the secretory pathway operates even after you block protein synthesis. Membranes are still formed and they are consumed and they are recycled. That can continue very, very, very long period of time, even in the absence of protein synthesis. So this, this relies on having built a self-replicating machine that obviously is informed by the genome. Yes, so if we think about think of uh, origin of life, in, uh, even if we can go at the unicellular organism and, and we think that in the this early times there were like re replicators in the in the soup. Mm -hmm. So so what you are suggesting that the the membrane or the in general, you know this encapsulation of this replicator can be yeah. another independent event. Yeah, right. That we can only speculate really, you know, we haven't actually reproduced uh, de novo, the formation of a cell. <clears throat> maybe, maybe in time that will be possible. Uh, but it, right now that subject, although it's an active area of investigation is all entirely speculative. It's unlike experimental, most experimental science where you can design something to test a principle, a principle of life or a principle of the universe. With the origin of life, it's all entirely uh, uh, speculation. And uh, maybe with time, someone will actually achieve a proto-cell uh, that can self-replicate, but that has, that we're a long way off from that. So it's, uh, it's still be a matter of debate about how life originated. There are, of course, many people who think that life on earth came from a primitive life form that landed on a meteorite from some other some other universe but that still that just moves the problem back one step it had to originate somewhere and um we don't really know where or how that happened yes but this sort of makes the membranes uh, really interesting, right? That how they are uh, formed and- uh, Well, membranes, I mean, membranes are you know, an ideal agent to, to encapsulate a cell because they can form spontaneously. If you just take a solution of phospholipids <clears throat> in an organic solvent and you dry it down at the bottom of a tube and then you resuspend it in buffer and, and you, know, you shake the tube, vesicles form spontaneously because of the thermodynamic properties of the acyl chains on phospholipids. So that, you know, that may have happened originally that some replicating center was encapsulated within a membrane, some primitive membrane, and just enough may have been contained within this primitive vessel to allow the creation of a self-replicating cell. And, uh, you know, the, the, the beauty will be if we can actually re recapitulate that process in the laboratory. That has not happened yet. Yes, but since you've been working with the, with the different um, cellular organs, which do have these membranes, so mm -hmm. do they have like similar similarities or they are different? 
Well, the membranes that participate in the, in the conveyance of secretory proteins share some properties, but they also are different. They have different protein composition, to some extent a different lipid composition. They are distinct and they can be separated from one another by physical techniques, uh, but they, are, they interrelate by a flow of, of material through the pathway. And so they have to, they have, to have some way of achieving uh, a, their unique composition, which is believed to happen by um, retrieval, selective retrieval of certain proteins, such as those that are characteristic of the ER that happen to escape, they have to be retrieved. Likewise, within the Golgi, proteins that move through the Golgi occasionally carry along some Golgi resident proteins, and those have to be recycled. So there's an active forward and backward flow that um, establishes the equilibrium position and structure of each organelle. Exactly, but, but the, the basic properties are preserved when we uh, start from East and you know, yeah, go yeah. to more complicated. Yeah, yes. well, nature solved the problem of how to secrete soluble proteins 2 billion years ago. And the mechanism that, that evolved it made sense to keep using the same parts. And so that, uh, of course, evolution has changed many of them and, and new decorations have been added, but the basic machinery has been preserved. And that's something that, that we learned when we uh, established the pathway of secretion in yeast, that it was formerly the same as in human cells. And when we were able to identify genes and their counterparts were subsequently found in the human genome, it became perfectly obvious, not surprising, but perfectly obvious that the, the genes are evolutionarily conserved. Paul Nurse had demonstrated that himself in his early work where he, dem where he was able to use a, a, a yeast mutant defective in cell division and to repair the defect by uh, fishing for the human gene equivalent. And he showed quite dramatically that the human gene for this protein could replace the yeast gene and the yeast cell would survive as though it were using its own protein. So that said, that made a very dramatic statement that genes of fundamental importance in intracellular events uh, are functionally conserved. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them are functionally conserved, which is really not, it's really quite surprising, but there it is, it works. Yes. So then let's talk about your uh, first mutant, like the, the, the mutant that you guys discovered, uh, SEC1. Mm -hmm. And it, there was a, this beautiful picture uh, where the, the budding yeast, you could uh, see those vesicles at the, at the, at the daughter's uh, cell. Yeah. Well, um, when we started um, my lab in 1976, I was not trained as a geneticist, so I didn't think that way, at least not initially. And when one of my first and most uh, outstanding graduate students, Peter Novick, joined the lab, we, we looked for chemical inhibitors that would block secretion with the hope that we could find something that would allow us to accumulate secretory vesicles and isolate them and study their composition. But, but the chemicals that were available to block secretion we're not, we're not effective in yeast. 
And so we, we, we resorted to looking for mutants, even though that wasn't our first plan, but that worked out very well. And uh, in late 1978, uh, Peter obtained his first mutant. We, we assumed that these genes would be essential for cell growth because we imagined that the vesicles that carry secreted proteins into the bud for fusion and discharge to the cell exterior would also, of course, have membrane proteins that would become part of the plasma membrane. And thus, the fusion of a vesicle at the cell surface would allow the, the surface of the daughter yeast cell to grow. And without that, of course, the cell would, would not grow and would, would die. So we looked for what are called uh, temperature-sensitive conditional mutants, that is, mutations that change an amino acid in the folded structure or protein that render the protein thermally unstable. And that's, this is a common um, phenotype for, for point mutations. If they change the stable folded structure or protein, they become somewhat more thermally unstable. And so this is a classic way of defining essential genes in a microorganism. And we did so, and we found the first mutant, SEC1. And, um, it, in the in the spring uh, of that of the next actually in the spring of 1978, uh, George Pilate, whom I've talked about, came to Berkeley to give some honorific lectures. And although I knew him, he wasn't aware of my new work on yeast, so I was excited to tell him about that. But the students organized a dinner, and Peter Novik told him about this mutant sec one but this was before we had looked at the mutant by electron microscopy. And so Pilate, of course, encouraged Peter to do that. And so he went ahead and did that. And by the summer of 1978, we had the images that you've described where the cells under normal conditions have just a small collection of vesicles that are underneath the bud portion of the growing cell. But when you block that last step with this mutant sec one, vesicles fill up the entire cytoplasmic compartment. And the, eventually the cell chokes because it can no longer grow and it's still making all of this stuff. So that was a revelatory moment, really sort of uh, the eureka moment in my career to see that image. And I knew from that moment that we would have uh, wonderful um, um, experiences over the next 20 years figuring it all out. So, so Peter then of course launched into isolating many more such mutants. And within 18 months, we were able to publish a paper where we described 23 new genes that inform this pathway. And uh, all of the work that we've done since then was launched by that study. Yeah, and then this, this, this the same study basically led to the discovery of COP2 complex, which could mm -hmm. uh, yeah. show how these uh, vesicles are formed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me just um, digress on that point a moment. Um, so I was trained as a biochemist and uh, the genetics for me was just a tool to discover the proteins. And um, a lot of yeast people stick with the genetics and that um, makes it more difficult, I think, to understand molecular mechanisms because uh, when you're studying a new pathway, uh, such as we were, I felt that if we clone the genes, I mean, one could do that at that point. 
that the sequence of the genes wouldn't necessarily be that instructive. These would be mostly new genes and they'd just be a string of amino acids, which wouldn't tell you what the protein did. Now, of course, some, there were some exceptions to that, but for the most part, the genes that are required for vesicle budding showed no homology to anything unless until the human genome was sequenced subsequently. And then you, you could see that the, there were the same genes, but that still didn't tell you what the proteins did. So uh, I felt all along that one would have to have some biochemical approach uh, using the mutants to help, help us focus on, on the physiologically relevant pathway. <clears throat> so we established subsequent to Novick's work, I had another wonderful graduate student, David Baker, who's gone on to his own very successful career in protein design. He devised a cell-free reaction, a way of breaking open yeast cells that re reproduced in the test tube, essentially the first half of the secretory pathway. And we use that to, um, as an assay to isolate functional forms, which then led to the purification of the proteins that constitute a coat that envelops and pinches a vesicle from the endoplasmic reticulum membrane. Yeah. But what is so special about this uh, COP2 complex? Well, it has many interesting features. One is it's um, easily assembled and disassembled. Uh, and, uh, and when it assembles, it has the intrinsic ability because of several of the subunits to recognize cargo proteins, membrane proteins that are on the cytoplasmic surface of the ER that are destined to be captured and moved to the Golgi apparatus. And these are distinguished from the many proteins that are designed to stay and function in the ER. They are left behind. And so the COP2 coat not only grabs the right cargo, but it then pinches uh, that cargo into a vesicle that buds from the ER. And then the coat spontaneously dissolves, leaving a, a strip vesicle that is then targeted for fusion to the Golgi apparatus and the subunits of the COP2 coat can be recycled to perform another budding event. Yeah, and then finally, these vesicles, once they are released from the cell, uh, they can act as both long range uh, communicators or short range communicators, sure, sure. Uh, which makes it very important in terms of animal physiology, right? Sure, sure, sure. No, the, these, um, Secretion is an essential aspect of physiology and um, it informs processes in essentially all of our cells and it's, mo it's most active in the brain, organizing the secretion of chemical neurotransmitters. The same SEC1 protein that we discovered in yeast that's required for the fusion of a vesicle at the, in, the, in the yeast bud, in the daughter cell bud, is involved in the fusion of synaptic vesicles to the presynaptic membrane of a nerve terminal. So, uh, and that process occurs in, in many different stations in the cell and uh, in essentially all cells in the body. Even if they're not growing and dividing, they're still actually man actively manufacturing and sec uh, secreted proteins. Exactly. I mean, this changes um, the understanding of gut feeling, for example. That <laughs> of, of what, of, what feeling? Of, of gut feeling, you know, that they, yeah, I mean, that the probably ourselves maybe can talk, talk to microbes, etc. You know? Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there is active communication between um, the microbes in our intestinal epithelium. And they may play a role not only in normal physiology, but in the, but in the generation of disease. I've been very, become very interested in Parkinson's disease. And one, one theory is that certain gut microbes may initiate the accumulation of a protein called alpha-synuclein that aggregates in cells. And it may be conveyed from cell to cell up the vagus nerve into the brain. That may be, that's one theory about the origin of Parkinson's disease. And it relies on some kind of perhaps ves vesicular communication between a uh, gut microbe and the intestinal epithelium. Exactly. I mean, this opens another area uh, in understanding um, the, the health and physiology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So your this work was um, appreciated by people in Stockholm uh, in 2013 uh, with James Rotman and uh, Thomas Sudoff. Mm -hmm. So what has changed after that? Well, um, I've gotten older. <laughs> uh, the work goes on. We're still uh, interested in vesicular traffic. Much of my work, even before then, shifted to studies on human cells growing in cell culture. And now we're working on an, an, another less well understood form of vesicular traffic that involves cells manufacturing vesicles that are exported outside of the cell, so-called extracellular vesicles or exosomes. And these are interesting because they, they contain uh, RNA. Normal secretory vesicles don't contain RNA, but extracellular vesicles do, and there's uh, some evidence that these RNA molecules contained in extracellular vesicles may be delivered to a target cell and change the meta metabolism of the target cell, or, or the, these vesicles may be exploited in, in disease to, to, for the spread of disease. There's some evidence for a role for exosomes in the spread of metastatic cancer. So it's become a very important area in physiology and, and disease. And so um, I'm quite excited about that new area that we're working on. Yeah. So one important distinction between two processes is that in the, in the first one, uh, the molecules are directly secreted in the extracellular mat matrix. In the second one, uh, the, they are secreted uh, or the RNAs are secreted in the exosomes, like in the right. Uh, membrane, right? And so that means that in order to be taken up to by a target cell, the the extracellular vesicles have to be internalized, kind of like a virus particle, and there must be some membrane fusion event between the exosome membrane and the endosome, in which it's housed, uh, so that what's inside the the exosome gets exported into the cytoplasm of the cell. And there's really very little known about that. It's a, it, it must happen, but very, very little known about it. <clears throat> so exactly. I, like this, I like this area because it's, uh, it's important, it's active, and yet there isn't all that much basic biochemistry and cell biology that's being done. Yeah, so in that case, uh, a cell, a long-distance cell, not only can change the, um, I don't know, certain gene expression, et cetera, in the, in the other cell, but it can also change the membrane composition. Yes, because, right. In principle, it can, yeah. but very few people have really studied it 
in that in that depth. But I think the field is going to grow and mature, and there'll be more more people with the mechanistic um, appreciation who join the field and study these, answer these questions. Yes, and the the interesting thing here is um, like briefly uh, your recent papers that they show uh, that in most of the exosomes you found uh, this popular microRNA two two three. Yeah. Um, which uh, seems to be delivered from uh, from uh, one part of the body to the other, right? Right. Yeah. There, you know, but the evidence that MIR-223 is actually being delivered functionally to another cell is pretty weak. Part of the problem, at least in the cell culture models that people use, certainly that we use, is that MIR-223 is we've shown is very highly and selectively enriched in exosomes. But chemically, it's not very abundant, very, very sparse. And uh, it seems hard for me to imagine that enough of that rare microRNA could be delivered to a target cell to change gene expression, since microRNAs are, are thought to control gene expression by dampening the, the protein synthesis from of, of a particular gene, and so and, and so it would have these microRNAs would have to act stoichiometrically rather than catalytically, and I just I find it hard to believe that. The, now it may be that in more natural physiologic settings there are some avenues of exosome biogenesis that enrich particular microRNAs to a much higher chemical concentration, but we have not seen that in the cell culture models that we use. Yeah, so let's hope that more people will uh, work on, or start working on this and start. They will. They will because there's an enormous interest in this area in biotechnology. I sit on six different biotech companies wow. uh, that, that are interested in exosomes for therapeutic therapeutic applications or for diagnostic applications, and so there's a great demand for trained personnel. So I, I'm sure that a lot of labs will be studying this. In the future, so I'm I'm happy to be part of that. Um, actually, uh, well, when I was preparing the session, um, I checked that FDA so far hasn't pr proved approved anything uh, for the. Oh no, yeah. there are lots of problems between uh, discovery and application. One of them is generating enough material. These exosomes are not terribly abundant when expressed by by cell culture. Or or in, a, you know, in an experimental animal. And they're very diverse. They're not just one type. So I think that's gonna be a bottleneck for um, the creation of a drug delivery vehicle based on exosomes. Yes, uh, let's, let's move on to your another important work, which is on scientific publishing. Okay. Um, and let's, let's start with this basic understanding that we need uh, to understand how scientific publishing works, which is peer review. Yeah. So what is peer review according to you and how, how does it work? Well, peer review is um, the evaluation of one's work by, by scholars of standing in the field. And uh, in the past, it used to be all anonymous where you'd send a paper to a journal and the journal would select appropriate experts to consult. And those people would render an opinion anonymously. 
Increasingly, though, people are being asked to identify themselves as referees, and if they're comfortable doing so, that's fine. But the worry is, of course, that if they're identifying themselves, they may not be as, um, uh, they may be not, they may not be willing to express themselves as freely. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to, that they have to be nasty, but that they, they should be willing to be critical, fair but critical. So I think the peer review system is essential. And um, I don't think there's going to be any viable alternative to that. On the other hand, we've also seen in the life sciences now an adoption of posting of manuscripts before they've been peer reviewed on an archive. Uh, one is called the bioarchive. So the bioarchive has now become very popular, uh, but, but one must remember that the, the work that's posted on the bioarchive has not yet been peer reviewed. And so it may be, may have mistakes or inaccuracies that can be corrected, but the, even, even when it's subject to peer review, there, there may be mistakes that persist because peer review usually only involves a small number of individuals and they can't catch everything. So the bioarchive is good because it gives a larger number of people an opportunity to see a work that has not yet been published and, and gives them, if they're willing, the opportunity to, to express some concerns to the author. And the author may not have considered these concerns. So I, I think it's a good thing. But still, before, before it can be adopted and, and generally accepted, it, it really should be peer reviewed. Now, the problem that I've seen over the course of my career is that um, the job of organizing peer review used to be um, achieved by scholars in scientific societies who organize themselves to publish the work in their field. But increasingly, and I think unfortunately, the field has become dominated by commercial interests who see the value in exploiting, frankly, the, the vanity of scientists who like to see their name up in lights. And so the most selective journals have a, a marketing strategy and a branding strategy that has captivated the attention of scholars all over the world who desperately try to get their papers published in these journals. Frankly, these journals are managed by people who are in the business of selling magazines. They're not fundamentally, or they're not singularly in the business of promoting scholarship. And this I think has been a bad trend. And so I've spoken out very strongly and publicly against this. And this was part of the reason why I was willing to start a new journal called eLife. That is where all the decisions are made by, by active scholars. But in fact, most journals are, are run by active scholars. It's the most, unfortunately, the most popular ones, particularly nature and science and in the life sciences cell, where uh, commercial interests have taken over. And I think this has distorted the meaning of scholarship. Commercial interests are, intre are, are, are promote papers that, have, that, that, are, that they see as potentially popular. So they may have a very short half-life. They may be important at the moment, but they don't necessarily reflect the long, deep scholarship that, that it sometimes takes for papers to achieve recognition. So then let's just talk about eLife and then I think um, more or less that sums it up. The, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, right. So eLife was started, I, I had served um, 
part of my philosophy formed while I was the editor in chief of the, of the journal, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which a job I took in 2006. And uh, I took that job because I had uh, a long history of publishing in the PNAS. And I remember it being very informative to me when I was just in college. And I, I really enjoyed the format and the, the breadth of scholarship. And here again, it was control, controlled entirely by, by non-commercial interests for the benefit of the National Academy of Sciences. It's not, it was never intended to make money for the National Academy. And so I, um, I started, but I became um, really irritated with the influence of um, um, a number that had been promulgated uh, to be used by libra librarians to make decisions about which journals to subscribe to. It's called the journal impact factor. And it's basically a, a crude number that measures the popularity of a journal, uh, but it doesn't measure the impact of an individual paper. It, it just measures the popularity of the journal. And uh, it, had, it had changed over many years into a measure that young scientists would know to three significant figures and make decisions about where they wanted to publish based on this meaningless number. And um, the, some of the staff at the PNAS told me that I should be rejecting more papers because that would increase the impact factor, giving it the appearance of being more highly selective. And that is precisely what I had no intention of doing. Uh, I think that's the wrong attitude. And so I, I railed against this and um, a lot of other journal editors felt the same way. And so I participated in uh, a charter for something called the Declaration of Research Assessment, DORA, which calls on everyone involved to move away from the use of that crude number. But it, it persists. I, I still see it all the time. I see it advertised. and. Um, it's pernicious and it's been exploited, frankly, by the commercial interests to, uh, to peddle their magazines. So it's a very bad tendency around the world and uh, um, evaluation committees are influenced by this. They're influenced by where, where something gets published rather than what's in the paper. And I, I think this is just terrible. And I, I fight against it and I, when I won the Nobel Prize, I, I announced that I wouldn't be publishing in these journals. I made a very public statement about this. And people thought I was hypocritical because I used to publish in those journals. And, and now, of course, I could afford to do whatever I wanted. But that was, of course, the only time that anyone would listen to me. <laughs> so I still feel very strongly. But unfortunately, it's, uh, that, that ship has sailed. And I'm afraid it's so deeply culturally embedded now that there's no turning back. Anyway, so in 2011, we started a new journal with support from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, from the Wellcome Trust, from the Max Planck Society that we hoped would be more effective in competing with these journals. And uh, we had some editorial policies that were unique and it has been very successful, but it hasn't supplanted the commercial journals. And I, you know, I think the, there's powerful forces at play here that make it 
difficult, if not impossible, to reverse that. And um, I think it's terrible, but um, I can only do so much. Uh, and many people actually have this sort of misconception that the e-life has an impact factor now. Well, it does. It does, uh, but it's meaningless. Um, when when journals start, you're, 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 you're encouraged to apply to the organization that computes this number. And we, of course, had no intention of doing this. We did not apply, but we were informed that they were collecting the data anyway and that they would compute our number. And even when we asked them to leave us alone and not do this, they said, it's public information, we'll do what we want. So yes, there is an impact factor. I don't know what it is. I don't care what it is. It's meaningless. But there it is. And some people will look at that and say, oh, I'm not going to publish there because its impact factor is low. Well, that, you know, there's, there's only so much I can do. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's hope that the trend will change. Yeah, um, I don't know. I'm not sure what will. There are things at play that expose the commercial journals for the avaricious pirates that they are. But I still, I don't think that will change anything. Yeah, I was in a conversation with a scientist who ranted about the journals. And then when I asked him that if tomorrow you wake up and you get to know that you've found your most successful discovery of your life, where will you publish it? Yeah. And he's like, yes, it'll, it will be one of uh, nature, science, or uh, cell journals. So yeah. That's because scientists are vain. They like, they like to win the lottery. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what the commercial uh, outfits appreciated. And they built huge financial empires on this basis. Elsevier is the largest publisher of science in the world. And they have a profit margin that exceeds essentially every other corporation in every other avenue of business because they rely on the free services of scholars to review the papers. They charge for the publication of the paper and then they turn around and charge libraries to, to, to subscribe to the journals. They're making money hand over fist without doing what a scientific society does. I, I'm not going to change my mind, and I work very hard to convince others, but it's been very extremely difficult to do so. Thank right. you so much. Good yes, luck. take care. Have a nice weekend. Yeah. yeah. Bye. Bye.